Welcome to The Mental Matchup, a podcast where we hope to shed light on one of the hardest competitions an athlete will ever face, the matchup against their own mind. I'm Kat, and in today's episode of The Mental Matchup, I'm joined by Emily Weibel. Emily grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, before attending Washington State University for undergrad. At Washington State, Emily rode, and during the episode, she opens up about her relationship with college athletics and how she learned to find her independence from athletics. Emily's story is very unique and very interesting, and I think there are a lot of pieces that people will relate to in terms of, you know, figuring out what you want, who you are. Um, She graduated from Washington State, but had, you know, attended other schools beforehand and transferring and finding rowing and playing softball and just a lot of great stuff. Um, Emily also recently started a coaching business called Brain and Body Foundations, where she offers strength and conditioning and mentorship platforms, which I would definitely say go check out. I am really excited to have her on for an episode that's focused on herself. And then there's actually a special episode coming out later this week around um the brain and emily teaches us some really cool cool stuff about the brain and mental health and that intersection um so with that let's get right into it Emily, thank you so much for coming on The Mental Matchup. I am beyond excited to have you on and chat, I think, about a lot of different things. Um, To kick us off, can you tell the audience a little bit about where you are, who you are, and what you do? Yeah, first of all, I want to say thank you for having me on, Kat. I really appreciate this opportunity to speak. Um, Like you said, I'm Emily, and I am a former student athlete. I rode for Washington State University. Currently, I am living in St. Louis, Missouri, going to school. I'm in a doctoral program for behavioral neuroscience um, and mostly uh, doing research for that, taking classes. And also I teach some undergrad site courses as well for that. So amazing. Um, Okay, so you're currently in St. Louis, but let's go... Let's go back. Take us back to like growing up. Where did you grow up? What kind of role did sport have in your life or, you know, in your community? Yeah. So growing up, I mean, from the time that I was like as little as I can think of, um, I was always playing sports. I had an older brother um, and he would have me like all padded up in hockey gear and the goal as he was a teenager and like taking slap shots off me as I'm like three years old and barely walking. So, um, sports have always been in my family growing up. I was like, I want to be an athlete like him. Um, and so that's kind of what I did. I started in sports. I, um, my first sport that I fell in love with, I think was basketball. I, wanted to play that from as young as possible. And my mom was the coach, um, on our little, like, team for rec league as I was growing up and also she was an amazing coach like I think back and she's like one of the most um influential coaches that I had as a young athlete which is really cool to have um she balanced that really well so just shout out to her for that but then as I started to grow up um went into softball and played softball that kind of became a sport that I was good at and then just naturally became my focus so then going into high school I only focused on softball we moved around a little bit so um, staying into other sports was a little bit more difficult. I ended up getting an injury and having to forego basketball in our, when I was in high school um, and then just kind of never returned to it. So solo became a main sport and focused on re- getting recruited for that. Went to lots of camps, lots of exposure things and ended up uh, walking on for a hot second at University of Arizona um, and then left the sport for a few reasons and then kind of I I was a freshman in college 
at University of Arizona, like late September and softball was no longer in my life. And I was like, I grew up and I, all I wanted to be was a division one athlete and I'm not this anymore. How can I do this? And so I was like thinking of things that I could do. And um, for some reason, rowing came into my mind in high school. There were like flyers in the um, hallways that were like, join the rowing team in St. Louis. And I was like, oh, like that would be good cross training, but I don't have time for that. And then I like remembered that back in college and had heard that people started rowing in college and was like, okay, well, I'm going to transfer schools. I'm going to become a rower and we're just going to make this work. I'm still going to be that division one athlete that I always wanted to be. Um, and so I ended up looking at a few different schools and started there in January of 2015, I guess, and picked up the sport really quickly. Um, one of the things that my coaches had kind of warned me of as I was going in there was like, okay, well, you typically have like swimmers and runners, but like not really softball players. So it's a different kind of sport and you might not like it. And that was not the case for me. Um, I remember that first day driving up to the boathouse after we'd been doing some land workouts, I was just like in the most beautiful place. We, we rode at Brioni's, which is also a place where, um, Cal gets to row there too. And I think anyone that has been able to go to Brioni's in Northern California, like knows that it is just a gorgeous, gorgeous place. Yeah. Okay. And so, yeah, so I was like, they weren't really sure, um, but I picked it up pretty quickly and then went on the water and like absolutely fell in love that first day that we were on the water. Um, I remember people talking about like being, there being shoes in the boat. And I was like, what do you mean there's shoes in the boat? Like, what is this talking about? And that was like my most confusing, like stuck point. And then finally I got in the water and I was in the boat in the water and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. There's nothing weird about it. And it's really cool. So that kind of started my love for rowing. And I, um, did really well my first season, made the varsity eight. We got third at, um, WCCs that year, which was like pretty good for the school, um for my boat at least we got that and then summer came and I like traveled and did all these things and came back in the fall um did that whole stuff had tried to do summer rowing and then after that season I did do summer rowing um and had decided after that next my sophomore year that I was going to transfer out of St. Mary's um so you you had transferred twice yeah yeah, um, I left Arizona and then went to St. Mary's and after my sophomore year was like, okay, it's time, time to leave. What can I ask like at both places, like when you look back now, is there anything you can point to of like why you transferred? Was it just a gut feeling? Was it classes? Was it pe- like, was there an overarching kind of theme or? So at Arizona, it was the sport was the biggest thing. Um, I mean, as I was being recruited for softball, I was told numerous times of like, make sure you look at the school and not just go there for a sport. And I was like, oh, but I love this. It'll be fine. And like, I'm never going to not play softball. And then turns out that was not the case. Mm -hmm. Um, And then for St. Mary's, I think that it was a lot of different things. Um, I the way that the classes were structured there, there's a lot of foundational courses and it was really difficult because it's a liberal arts college to do more than one major. And with that, um, I had still been wanting to do more than one major. And I'd also, from a sports standpoint, um, had a lot of really good success as a walk-on student athlete that's just picking up rowing for the first time. And I was looking for a little bit more of a challenge um to be honest so with the my early on success I wanted to be around individuals that were gonna um continue to challenge me in my development of rowing because at the time I wanted to like try out for national team for lightweight rowing um and that was kind of my goal and I think that St. Mary's did a really really good job setting me up for the initial foundation of rowing and um, had a really great time there, met some really great individuals and again, had a good foundation, but was just kind of ready for that next step. So when I look back at my transfer experiences, I think of them as I was always trying to go towards something greater, not avoid something. And that's where I think that was most important for me. So, um, that summer that I decided to leave St. Mary's 
in the spring, I went to go row for the New York Athletic Club. And one of my coaches was a former Washington State student athlete and really enjoyed being coached by her and made some good connections, ended up reaching out to the Washington State University coaches and ended up at Washington State. That's so interesting that, like, would you say when you kind of put your mind to something, like nothing's going to get in your way that you kind of like make a decision and you stick to it? Yes. And that can come with really good benefits and really big faults as well. <laughs> um, no, because it just sounds like in both of those, like you kind of were like, no, I, I want to do something else. And this is what that something else probably looks at like. And like sticking through it is, I don't know, fascinating. Before we get to Washington State and your rowing experience there, I quickly want to ask you, Growing up, were there any conversations around mental health, whether it be at the dinner table, um, by a coach? I, I don't know necessarily, like, you know, in a community setting or at home or with friends, like, were there ever conversations about mental health or mental health in athletics? Short answer is no. The only time that I can think of with mental health was I was with a pitching coach and I don't remember how old I was. Um, I think it was before high school though. Cause it was before. Yeah. I was definitely middle school age. Um, and I remember there at the time, looking back now, I'm like aware of what had happened, but I think one of the athletes that she had been around um, had died by suicide and, or attempted, I don't know which one, but I remember going to that lesson and like her talking to my mom and then looking at me and being like, everyone has these thoughts at some point. If you ever have them, just like, please, please, please talk to someone. And that really being the only thing. And I was like very confused of like, I don't even know what you're talking about kind of thing. Um, but that was a moment that did stick with me. And like later on when I did have experiences of suicidal ideations, having that little bit like did kind of help in some ways because I was like this isn't the only abnormal thing like there are other people that feel this but it was also still like very intrusive and like did I talk to anyone about it at the time not when I was younger um and during high school I look back and I so I went to a private all-girls high school which is very very normal normal for St. Louis there's lots of private single-sex education schools for high school so, which was a huge privilege and I had a lot of opportunities with it. That being said, it was a uh, high school where like we still did retreats and stuff like that. And there'd be this like kind of trauma dumping in some ways, but with the hope that it would be productive. Um, and I look back at those times and I think there were a lot of opportunities for adults in my life to step in and be like here's some help for you and here's some guidance and there are things that like this is not just like you sharing your experience but let's like make something productive with it um and that didn't happen unfortunately and no one contacted my parents about like getting me any help I had peers that were like oh this is my therapist and you should go and see them and I remember this was during my senior year and I remember telling my mom about the therapist. I don't remember their name at this point. And when she called, they were full. And my mom was like, well, and she's an eating disorder therapist anyway. So like, you don't need that. Um, and there was some eating disorder stuff going on at the time. Um, though I wasn't like fully aware of it or like had a name for it either. So I ended up going to see a therapist as well and sat in this office Um in a very uncomfortable chair and with this woman who I didn't know, like, and she just handed me papers to fill out. And by the end of the conversation, it was like, well, why are you here? What's wrong with you? And I'm like, I didn't know what to say. Cause I'm like, well, like you tell me. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I don't know things are probably not normal, but also I don't know. And I did have one therapy experience prior to that when I was in middle school um, and having trouble with friends um, just like making friends and having like consistent friend groups, which goes into some of the stuff later on that we'll talk about. But I remember being in that that office as well. And my mom was with me at the time and the therapist being like, well, you're just having trouble making friends probably because like uh, you just need to do more. Um, you need to like 
ask people about themselves more. And this is something that like is your problem and you need to change yourself for it. And I, it didn't really give any direction. Um, and I'm sure like it was probably better said than what I'm perceiving or like remembering, but um, basically a history of like not good therapy experiences as a child. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally hear you on that. I think therapy can be incredible. And I also think sometimes when it's not the right fit, the delivery and, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say every therapist is like amazing um, because, you know, every person has its things, but I do think it's, I don't know. I think even with like relationships, right? It's like you have to build that foundation of trust before you start kind of handing out pieces of advice or like, hey, maybe do this or maybe do that, Um, especially when you're younger. I feel like, I don't know. I feel like I was less hesitant to trust people when I was younger. And now I'm like, I can kind of sift through. I don't know. Anyway, neither here nor there. Thank you for sharing that. I, I find like the, this, the same, I don't know if this is the right, you, you put it well, the same sex education schools, like all girls or all boys is very fascinating. I went to public school and like probably had a very different experience than you. And, but I feel like some of the things I hear coming out of like all girls school or all boys school is that for like all girls school, there's a lot more leadership opportunities for the girls because, you know, because it's like normally females don't win out on like the popularity contest of electing class presidents um, at like a public school, or at least that was like what I witnessed and observed. But I do think there's a lot more tendency for, I don't know, like trauma, which sounds like a very general thing to put out there because I'm sure a lot of people have high school trauma, but I don't know. I I should honestly read up on that. I'm going on a tangent. Um, very good. It's Yeah, it's just fascinating how different experiences really impact and mold, um, you know, people into who they are, who they are today. We're going to get back to Emily in a moment. I'd like to take a second to talk about Morgan's message, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Morgan's message was founded in July of 2020 to honor Morgan Rogers, who was a beloved sister and fiercely loyal friend. Morgan's message's mission is simple. We strive to eliminate the stigma surrounding mental health within the student-athlete community and equalize the treatment of physical and mental health in athletics, aiming to expand the dialogue on mental health by normalizing conversations, empowering those who suffer in silence, and supporting those who feel alone. I've seen Morgan's message do a lot of good in the world, and I am really grateful that we have the podcast as part of our platform. If you are interested in finding out more about Morgan's message specifically, you want to get involved or you just want to follow along, you can head to morgansmessage.org or find us on Instagram at Morgan's message. Let's get back to Emily. Let's get into Washington State. Yes. So you transfer twice. You're at Washington State. It sounds like you're excited to embrace the sport of rowing fully and like really kind of just like dive into it. Can you, I don't know, walk us through it? Like what was the first experience of getting on campus like and, you know, joining the team and (laughs) yeah um my first experience with Washington State I like I was very excited I talked to the coaches um the assistant coach at the time 
um, he had, I had been rowing in the summer and he would call me and check in on how things were. And I was able to meet one of the graduate assistants who's now at a different school um, as a head coach, which is amazing. I'm so happy for him. Um, but he, I got to meet him. We were at a race in Canada. And so I got to meet him in person there before going over to Washington state. So I, the plan was that we were going to drive from um, Eastern Canada to Washington with all my stuff because I had been living in New York that summer. You and your family or you and? My mom and I. Your mom and I. Okay. Yeah. So we took a detour in St. Louis because it was like a three-hour detour. And what happened there was a family crisis. And I ended up having to stay there a little bit longer than planned. But I still had to get to Washington State on time for um, the like orientation kind of stuff that you had to go through. So I ended up flying out with one suitcase that was checked to Spokane, Washington and having a teammate who the coaches had asked to come pick me up from Spokane, which is like an hour and a half North, come pick me up and drive me to this apartment that I had rented and signed a lease for without ever seeing in person or like knowing what it looked like, never been to Washington. And um, the teammate that hooked me up was super nice, um, very, very kind and was like offering to help me with anything. Um, and I get there and I had nothing. Um, I didn't have any furniture. I didn't have a bed. Um, thankfully I had like that same teammate loaned me an air mattress. So I slept on that for the first like month and a half, um, and lived out of this suitcase, um, and just kind of did what I could, had no car. Thankfully Pullman's pretty small, so I could still like get where I needed to. And I did have a lot of good teammates that did help me out. Um, but it wasn't an easy start um by any means and then we had practices starting up and it was going really well the coaches were um happy with how I was performing I again I'm a smaller person I'm five four by five on a good day uh and rowers are typically like much taller (laughs) um so I am in the category of a lightweight rower just naturally fitting um and like on the borderline of like possibly a coxswain who is the smaller person that steers the boat um so for me it was always a challenge to perform to the same level and pull the same numbers as my teammates that are larger than me so i was thankfully initially keeping up really well and that was going amazing but i had this nagging injury um that i was like i i was always a bad athlete at being injured i thought like I was always told to just kind of like tough it up and go through things so um I'd gotten injured as an adolescent before and again it was always just kind of like tough it out like it'll be fine um where I like would break bones and still play for two weeks at a time but that didn't fly at Washington State so I was kind of really a weekend when I was called into the head coach's office who I had not talked to her at that point I'd seen her practices she hadn't really said anything to me um and was really reprimanded for not listening to our like trainer and I was really confused because I was like what do you mean I've been listening I've been doing the things like I hadn't perceived up until that point that I was doing anything wrong um and essentially what had been happening though I wasn't aware of it um was that I wasn't listening to the athletic trainer and stopping workouts when I was supposed to be um but I had always been trained of like you push and you do as much as you can and you perform really hard but that was happening at the detriment of like my healing and it was I had to take a redshirt year because of the transfer rules so it's not like I was even going to be competing but I was like I need to prove myself and show that I'm like worth being on this team um and so the coach was like if you don't stop and listen then like you're not going to be on my team anymore and so I was just I was just really confused um because sorry I was gonna say before you start you're probably gonna answer this question like I I personally without like knowing anything else so I could be totally off base feel like a coach stepping in and saying like hey your body needs to heal is like a good thing was yeah yeah it was really confusing though yeah I was was like (laughs) I was not used to that I was not used to that at all and 
and I like hadn't known that I wasn't letting my body heal. So it was like really confusing because I had this coach who was doing what coaches are supposed to do and saying like, look, you need to take care of yourself. And also not realizing that I wasn't taking care of myself. And so it was this huge learning curve of like, how do I listen to my body and like realize that I'm hurting myself during a workout when I've always just blocked out the pain and never been in tune to my body during a workout? It's so crazy. It is really wild that I, that athletes are like student athletes are just conditioned to like, what was, oh my God, that stupid quote. That's like, pain is weakness leaving the body. Like what? I mean, you know, the things that we're like told from such a young age of like, you push through, you don't stop. Like, like, listen, I'm all for like, Hey, you push through when you miss a play or you mess up and you make the next one better. But like, I am not signing up for you push through when you have an injury and you're playing in pain and you're not going to be able to walk the next day. Like, like, I think those things are so different. And so I do think like kudos to a coach who can be like, Hey, you got to take care of your body. Like you got to take care of your body first. Yeah. And it was just, it was so foreign to me because I had grown up in this world where I, like at one point I was at a tournament um, as a high school softball player and I had slid into home wrong. My knee was super swollen. I'd finished pitching the entire game, had a great game. And like it, my teammate had said that my knee looked pregnant. It was so swollen essentially. Um, and so between games, I had gone to urgent care to get an x-ray to see it was too swollen for them to even see the bones on the x-ray. And when I got back, I was like 10 minutes late for our next warm up, And my coaches had yelled at me and said that if I didn't run with the rest of the team to do the warm ups, then I was pulled out of the rest of the tournament and like, they wouldn't play me for the rest of the season. Um, so that was really difficult. And that same year I had not finished my sophomore year high school because of a concussion, gotten back, had the injury with the knee, gotten back from that at the end of the season, had a collision with someone, had a second concussion that I knew was a concussion and was told by my coach that it was fine to just shake it off. Um, And by the time that I got home, my mom was like, this is not my child. It is not you. We are going to the doctor. You were getting an evaluation because you have another concussion. So I didn't finish my sophomore year of high school for a concussion. And then I didn't start my junior year of high school on time because of another concussion. So coming from that history of like athletics and having, again, like having multiple broken bones, I broke an ankle once, I broke an arm once, and both those times I played two weeks of sports without getting an x-ray. Yeah. Do you feel like you kind of had been like conditioned to think that like, if I don't push through this, something that I love is going to get taken away from me and therefore it's critical that the pain doesn't matter. I'm going to push through because ultimately like it's going to get me to where I want to be. Yeah. Ultimately it was that I, it was a combination of that. And then me also just like as an individual being very bad at knowing what my body was feeling. Um, so it's, it's like, if I was feeling pain and I tried to say something about it, having being reprimanded for that or not feeling pain and then pushing it off until the very last minute and then being reprimanded because I had not spoken up about it. So yeah, wow. a big, big mix of things, but th- that was not the case at Washington state in that beginning. Um, and I was very confused. So I learned very quickly, um, how to be in tune with my body, um, at the young age of 20. <laughs> um, so that was quite an experience. Um, to have to like pause after five minutes of erging and being like, okay, what am I feeling? Mm -hmm. And and, like, am I okay? Or what's happening? So. So you kind of learn you're in an interesting situation, which also seems like very challenging. You like moving plans get kind of shattered. You end up like, living in an apartment by yourself on an air mattress for a month and a half, new team, new school, new surroundings, haven't been there. Um, You're like reprimanded for something you didn't realize was a thing to be reprimanded for. Uh, What kind of, what kind of happens next? Like at this point, when you reflect back, like, do you remember being happy about your decision? Like, 
where were you at mentally? And then, you know, like take us through kind of the rest of your career there. Um, I think at that time I was still really happy with my decision. And it's not that now looking back, I'm not happy with my decision. I think that um there's like it's it's a whole lot of things. I'm not necessarily not happy with Washington State, but looking back at it now, I mean the rest of my career, um, I finished out that year of being a redshirt. I competed in the summer, I had really good success competing. Um and then came back in the fall and was doing really well, was in the top, I think, 16 at that time because I got to go to one of our pair races in Canada, got injured. Um, and during my whole time there, I there were conversations with the athletic trainers and different individuals and coaching and all that kind of stuff about my weight. Our coach liked athletes to be bigger and to have more weight on them which is overall really good, right? Like that sounds great. That's what we want in a lot of sports is for athletes to be able to be embraced for being able to put on weight, um, especially where it's appropriate. But for me, there was this fine line kind of, of I wanted to perform at my best and wherever my body was going to be for that, not force myself to put on weight necessarily, um, which was not always received well because I had had a history at St. Mary's, which I didn't speak of earlier, where when I come back in the fall for my sophomore year, I ended up in the hospital for an eating disorder. Um, and kind of sorry to backtrack a very like roundabout kind of thing. My experience there was interesting because it was exactly the opposite of what I had at Washington State because I had gotten there in the fall. I had not trained enough in the summer. I was supposed to be the number one on the team because that was my ERG score was the number one weight adjusted. My coach talked a lot about how every pound was three seconds of time or every five pounds or something around that. Um, and so I thought to myself, if I can't be the fastest one on the team, I'm at least going to be the smallest and most weight efficient like I was in the past. So I was in something like equivalent to like 21 credits at the time and just tearing my body that, apart. What does that mean? What does 21 credits like, mean? Like 21 academic credits. So like the typical. Oh, 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 oh. I yeah. thought it was like, like 21 or 22. Your, your body. No, no, no. no. Like I've never heard this. What is, yeah. No, 21 academic, 20, like 21 or 22 academic credits at the time. So like, like a lot of, of a course load and also just tearing my body apart and after like I was pulled out before like their actual practices even started because I'd passed out in the like team's like captain's practice or whatever um so had all these things didn't want to talk to our team athletic trainer about what was going on and finally it came to a point where I wanted to talk to the head athletic trainer and it took about a month um, and me talking to our team's captain and being like, I am not doing well and I need help. And I texted our head athletic trainer multiple times, had been postponed meetings, had been avoided. And finally, after our captain had talked to him, he met with me. And I was told that we were going to address it quietly that I would be outside of sports still but I had to go to weekly meetings or appointments at the health center and my second appointment there I had a heart rate that was too low um to like my they I guess they couldn't get my pulse manually so they put me on the ECG and it was way too low um wow very like <laughs> way too way too low um and so was told by them without like this wasn't athletic staff this was the general health center that I was a liability on campus and they would be sending me to the emergency or they would be sending me to the hospital the, did so they thought, did they use that term liability yeah <sighs> yeah so I thought that I was going to the ER I was like, oh, like you're going to send me to the ER, something's happening. And I hadn't talked to that medical staff about any food stuff. I hadn't been transparent with them about that. I hadn't been saying anything about that. I just talked to the head of the trainer about it. And so I texted my teammate, who is the captain, and said, hey, I'm going to the hospital. Um, like, could you give me a ride? And they're like, 
no, you have to go in an ambulance. Like we can't legally send you because again, this is like, we have to make sure you're going. And I was like, okay, whatever. So then I ended up on the phone with the staff and I heard the medical staff that I was on the phone with say, we don't do tubes and we don't do refusals. And I was very confused because I was like, what are you talking about? I'm going to the ER. I don't know what this means. Um, come to find out that they were sending me into an eating disorder unit. And I had not talked to anyone about that. Um, I had tried to get help for it for a while um, and was sent to, I, yeah, I think before I went to, it was either before or after the hospital, the athletic, had athletic trainer had sent me to a diet, a nutritionist, not a dietitian who had told me like essentially that she wasn't qualified, that she was just a nutritionist and that like hadn't dealt with eating disorders. But I was like, no, you're the one that I was sent to. This is fine. Um, so basically that was a whole mess. I was in the hospital for about a week for that until my heart rate could get up. I, even by the, ho- the hospital staff, um, my overnight heart rate didn't meet standards, but it was close enough during the day. And they said, well, you're an athlete. So, um, and you've been doing good enough. So we're going to send you home. So um, I can tell you my heart, it wasn't low because I was an athlete. Uh, that was still too low of standards for that. Um, but so then going into Washington State, they were a little concerned <laughs> because that was the history. Um, I had done well, though. Um, I had done well after that experience. I had bounced back really well. There wasn't huge, like, lingering things of eating disorder stuff. Um, I was able to be released for running on December 5th, which was really exciting. My The athletic trainer had made me do, like, the alter G to kind of ease back into things. Um, and then I was able to go to our winter camp that started in, on December 30th. That was my first day running back and it was also my birthday. So I was so excited. Um, during that winter camp, we went to the beach to run, uh, or to walk. It wasn't mandated to run, but I was so happy to be able to run. So I was just like living that life and doing that. Um, and by the time it hit the end of winter camp um in we had these like one month long classes in january and i was in that class um and i was in a lot of pain um and i went to the athletic trainer and i said hey i'm in pain they said i don't know what to do with you so here is a boot possibly um i remember sitting in that class just after that with tears in my eyes because i was just sitting there in so much pain Um, I, it's never been confirmed, but the thought is that I had a stress fracture in my tibia and I was told that if I had, that I was, the trainer that I was working with was really frustrated with me. Um, and when I came in after having the boot on and was still in pain, she was like, well, what do you want me to do? Do you want to be on crutches? Like, do you want to be on crutches? And I was like, I don't want to be on crutches, but this hurts really bad. So I thought that being on crutches was going to be really bad and look bad. So I forgave, like I went, I didn't do that and just walked on it. Um, I was allowed to do swim workouts. So would be in the pool with all that kind of stuff. And essentially I was told that um, if I wanted to do x-rays, then that was my choice. But then they would have to wait until um, if any results came out positive, I would have to wait until they were completely healed in order to be able to compete. So I was encouraged not to do x-rays and to just wait until it started to feel better. So that year I had a six week season and had been asked, I'd asked my coach if I could have taken a red shirt, but was told no. Um, and what kind of impact did that have on your mental health? Like, was it, um, I, there's a lot of impact, I think, that I'm not fully aware of um, during that time as well as, I feel like I'm just dumping everything right now. But during that time as well, I also met um, a contracted staff through that athletics department who started to Snapchat me and engage in inappropriate ways, um, who later on um like essentially what happened is now that I'm older and realize it and look back on it throughout the time that I was in college up until me returning to St. Louis, this, uh, this staff 
was inappropriately messaging me and had me meet them um, multiple times um, for drinks or travel with them. And I was essentially groomed by this staff member. Um, so had inappropriate relations that were unwanted um, as well um, after I left that school. So all of those things combined put together for really bad case of medical trauma. And then as I went to Washington State, even though they did really well, um, they were always very conscious of, I think the intentions there were always to try and help me and identify things that were going wrong. What ended up happening my senior year was it was, I came and had had a really good summer. I, this is like jumping around again, I'm sorry. Um, I had a really good summer. I had done a like 100, 200 mile bike race, the port, like Seattle Portland ride with my friend. Had been working with the dietitian on staff to like make sure that I was fueling myself properly and was really happy with my success in that because it made a huge impact and I felt so good about it. And I came back to school, things were starting up. I was having stomach issues that were really bad. Um, the dietitian had changed. We had a new um, dietitian on staff and was told that I was just having a raging eating disorder episode. Um, and everyone was really kind of on heightened alert for that. I had been dropping weight um, and I was trying to desperately say that I didn't have an eating disorder. I was trying to do the best that I could, that there were serious stomach issues that were going on and that was dismissed. And um, like, I can empathize and hear like how, like why the medical staff treated it the way that they did. But ultimately I was at this, the, will of what they said and I had no control over my body or what was happening to my body and I think that's one thing that really gets um swept under the rug a lot of times for athletes that can be really impactful to student like mental health is realizing that as a student athlete you lose a lot of bodily autonomy and recognizing and acknowledging that can be really harmful um and so that's kind of where I was at in this last year of my senior year of competing was I had lost bodily autonomy. Um, I wanted to compete. I wanted to find out what was actually wrong and it was misdiagnosed. And when I had gotten home for winter camp, the eating disorder specialist that I had been referred to in Spokane and seeing had really encouraged me to investigate things while I was home. I did. I had an endoscopy and I had a stomach ulcer that had been um, around for those months and not treated, not an eating disorder. So I felt really good because I was like, I was right. See, I knew what I was doing. Um, but I lost my whole fall of my senior season and a time where I felt really good. Um, I was able to compete that spring that went okay, got injured surprisingly, <laughs> not surprisingly. And, um, in those last few weeks of the season, I had bilateral rib stress fractures and I didn't realize how serious it was but now looking back I realized that it was pretty serious um and wanted to fight through as much as I could because I wanted to finish out that season so and again while I was at Washington State at that time I think the medical staff were really on high alert um because I was in the same graduating class as Taylor Holinsky and so when he passed um everyone was kind of very aware of addressing mental health. And so I was referred to a school psychologist and they tried to get me help that I could have. Unfortunately, those providers really weren't a good fit for me. And I didn't realize that that was a thing either. So um, I was just left very confused. Um, do, you, yeah. do you think in hindsight, like the... in and I'm hesitant to say this but I like think it's like a good question to ask is like mm -hmm. do you think in hindsight the injuries that your body was having was its way of saying like you need to slow down absolutely yeah I think so um I think if yes and no I mean I think that Yes. 
yes, it was my body's way of telling me that I need to slow down. Um, and I think that it still is like, that's my body's way of still telling me now, um, that I need to slow down. I'm a little bit more attuned to it than I used to be, but still not great at it. Um, so, but I, again, like we kind of said earlier on, like I had my mindset to something and I decided that I was going to do it. And unfortunately that was to my downfall. And so, um, I, yeah, I think that then once I was out of college, I didn't have my sport. I was told that movement was not good for me. And that was like my escape um, because of the the rib injuries um, that I needed to take time off and everything. I, and then I went and had this interaction with this medical staff um, and everything kind of hit the fan. Um, so I was planning to stay back in Washington for a little bit longer and ended up back in St. Louis and in eating disorder treatment once again. <laughs> so that kind of started years of me figuring out what was going on and addressing my mental health. And looking back on that time now, I think that a lot of, yes, my injuries were trying to tell me to slow down and my injuries were also a way for me to have a forced break, not just in the sense of my body, but like my mind as well. And that is one thing that I am still continuing to learn is because I have a tendency to overschedule things or do too many things, I get to a point where now the only way for me to take a break that is considered to be valid for me is if I'm in a complete state of breakdown. Which is not and, good, in my no, opinion. It's not good. In my no, personal it's opinion. Not, <laughs> not good. It's not healthy. But I think that's one thing that I learned as an athlete though, right? The only time that I was ever allowed to break was if I, my body was broken down. And so I am learning now that like we need to avoid that. And currently very much that feels very true right now. I'm in a state of like where I work with my providers and they're like hey you need to something needs to break right now and I'm like nope I can't afford to do that um but what are yeah. what are some so like you've been on this healing journey you're you're like verbally recognizing like I uh, I have been, you know, conditioned, done this, whatever, whatever, not like whatever, whatever like that, but you know, no, yeah. you name it to feel like the only time I can get a break is when there's no other option. Like it's like, I'm at the bottom. Is there anything that either the providers you've worked with or just you out discovering and investigating on your own have put into place in your life to help with that, like, reset, relax, decompression, healing that you feel like has been impactful in your journey? Um, we're working on it. <laughs> so I think one thing is like me being aware of it is the biggest thing, first of all. And like also me having providers that I really trust has been huge. I have had a very long history, including like since college of having providers um, that have not been a good fit for me. I've had providers that have walked out of therapeutic sessions on me. I've had providers like that have been deemed to be the expert in their field and talk at national conferences all over the place to like claim to be an expert in something that they weren't. And then that be a detriment for me for years. I've had providers that have put me on medications that I've told them weren't working and still have me on them for years. I thankfully now have a very good team of providers who have helped me and we continue to try to identify the best medications for me. So medications is number one for me. Uh, me taking the medications that are working for me and not knowing, like communicating with my provider what is working or not. It has taken a long time to identify meds that are working and we're still trying to find an experiment with what's going to be better. Um, number two is still working with my like other, my therapist and my other team, um, not just my psychiatrist and being honest with them. Um, additionally, I have improved my ability to communicate and also like 
with other people about what my needs are. And so I guess like an example is this week, I had a major paper that was due on Wednesday and I asked for an extension and thankfully I got that extension. Um, and so that has been really helpful as well. Um, it's not the perfect solution. I'm still currently in the midst of like trying to figure out how I can like get myself through the rest of the semester essentially. Um, but I'm actively working with people that can help me identify that. I have to tell you, I love that answer. Like, I love the honesty of like, we're working on it. Um, (laughs) Because I think that while like some people find what works, like when I have conversations with them, they might be at a point, right? Like everyone is so different and like healing journeys are so different and experiences are so different that they may be at a point that is sooner or later than you where they found things that worked. But I love the honesty of just like, no, like here are the things I'm working on um, and we're getting there. But like, because I'm sure people listening can relate, right? Like I definitely, that resonates with me at certain parts in my life when I was like, if you had asked me things that helped, I could tell you things I've been trying or like trying to lean into. Um, But, you know, I don't think it's a bad thing to not have all the answers. I think it's a bad thing to not want to find the answers in, you know, my personal, my personal opinion, take it or leave it. We are just about a time and I feel like we've covered maybe not everything, but a lot of things, Uh, a lot of things. Yeah. A lot of things. Is there anything that you feel like we haven't touched on that you want to share with the audience? Yes, actually. So I think one of the main parts in my journey that I haven't really talked about and don't really talk about a lot, but I think is really important and relevant on this podcast is that the word suicidality is not a bad word. And that as a student athlete, I didn't realize I was experiencing suicidality by not wanting to exist at times. And can you, since being can you define yeah. suicidality for Yeah. Listening? Yeah. So um it can look a lot of different ways for different people. I think um during my time as a student athlete, at times it looked like me hoping that something bad would happen so that I could have a break and then that thing happening of like me being injured and then hoping that something worse would happen so I could have another break or hoping that I could just like not exist or disappear for a little bit. Um, At that time, I didn't realize it wasn't suicide. It was suicidality because I was like, well, I don't want to just necessarily die. I just like don't want to exist. It's very different, Um, which not really, but you know, in my mind it was. And now it's a little different of also I don't want to exist but I'm able to acknowledge that that's like also suicidality um and sometimes there can be suicidality of that just not wanting to exist and no plan sometimes there is a plan sometimes there's attempts all that kind of stuff um as a student athlete and as a young kid I had had those thoughts um And I think that one of the things that I didn't do at that time that may have been beneficial to me was understand the importance of speaking to someone about it early on. Um, Because in my mind, I thought that if I told someone that I would be going to the hospital or I'd be locked up in a psych ward or everyone would freak out. And as I've been an adult, and been on this mental health journey. Um, I have had trusted providers who I have shared that suicidality with. And turns out I do have chronic suicidality. And I think that an important part of that is, so I have a lot of intrusive thoughts that tell me that I don't want to exist often. Um, It is not all the time. And so I think it's important for me to at least share that someone can still live with having chronic suicidality and it's not ideal and we're working towards finding what medications are going to help with it and therapies that help with it and there's been times where it's like been really really quiet and not consistently happening every single day and there's been times when it's louder I know what I need to do when it's louder and versus like when I what I can do with it being quieter so um basically to say that 
once I did finally share the thoughts that I was having and found providers that I felt comfortable being honest with, we were then able to better address the problem. And it wasn't the scary, you're going to the hospital and we're locking you up. It was, okay, what are the thoughts? Do you have a plan? What is the plan? Is there a timeline? All these kinds of things. Answering those questions and then identifying the best course of action from that. I've had really good providers who have met me where I'm at. I've had a very good support system of friends and family. And there's some people that I tell about it. There are some people that I don't talk about it about. I haven't told my parents about it or been as honest about it with them. But they also know the questions to ask of like, are you okay? And I'll be like, yeah, I am. Or this is what I need right now. And maybe we're just going to sit on the couch and hang out for a little bit. Um, and so I can get that help and get those needs filled without having to like disclose everything. Thank you for sharing that. One, two, I think this is such an important conversation because I think a lot of people feel this way at some point in their life. And it's a very scary feeling. And I don't think, like, I think it's, I don't know if normal, common, like, you know, people who feel it, I feel like a lot of times, like with my depression, right? I, when I was at like the lowest, I was like, no one else knows what I'm going through, blah, blah, blah. Like, that's not true. Like a lot of people, like everyone's journey is unique in their own, but like people have similar experiences with what they're going through. And I think that's what's so important about this conversation and this podcast is really sharing that like, hey, you're not alone. Like, even if it doesn't look completely the same to what you're going through like this right like Emily is going through has been through is going through some of the suicidality like that's one example right of like okay like yes I still need to get support yes I need to figure out how to manage this but also like yes there are other people who are experiencing this and they're able to manage it and still live like a pretty good life you know, and I think that's really important, especially, I want to say especially for like young people, but I also feel like for anyone of any age um, to kind of understand and open up more of these conversations. Because I think the more that we can talk about these things, like the more normalized they become and the less afraid and scared people are of getting that help and raising their hands and saying, hey, here's what I need today. Like, here's how I really need to be supported. Like, can you be that person for me today? Can can you help me in this? Like, even if it's, you know, I don't really want to talk about it, but like, if we could do this, I know that would make this better. Like, I, I don't know. I just think, I think it's super important. And I, I hope there's more of it, you know, within the broader, broader society that we're living in. Um, Thank you for sharing. Yeah, thanks for giving me a chance to share. And I think another thing too is that like, if like for me, sometimes like if those feelings are present, um, I want to pull away from people and also knowing that like, that's the time when I like need to reach out to friends and I don't have to tell them details. Like I don't have to tell them everything. But what I can say is like, hey, can we have a movie night tonight? Or like, hey, can you maybe like, I live alone sometimes. And so- um I've, I've lived a lot of times in my life and so then there's times when I'm like hey like can you come stay over tonight or like can we have a sleepover at your place um and it's ways that like build in safe because like the biggest thing is like when those things are very acute is building in safety um and so it's like those I might still have those feelings I might still have those thoughts and I can also build in safety for myself in a very caring way that is going to keep me safe, even though it might not necessarily like change everything until I can get to a point where I can like be safe on my own. Um, and so I think that's another important thing is like, not everyone has to know everything. Like it's important to tell people that are providers and um, for other people to be aware so you can address it. And also meds make a huge difference. I found a med like, and we cycle through meds because I, build a tolerance pretty quickly but when I'm on the right meds it is so much better so 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 much better and even just recently I had a time where I have a med 
that I've been taking for a while, it works really well. We know it works really well. We just said another thing into the mix and it caused suicidality to increase a lot. And I was in a really bad place for a little bit and told my providers to all the things. We stopped the med. And then today I woke up and was like, wow, things are very much better. And the med is out of my system. So um, it's a combination of like being able to build in safety to your and like disclose to your comfort level and you can still build in safety without disclosing everything and also being on the right meds, having the right kind of providers, having the right kind of therapy. Not all therapy is the same. There's different modalities of therapy and different modalities are gonna, of therapy are going to help in different ways. Yeah. I also, I also do want to just like caveat and say like I have had good and bad experiences with medications and like my personal choice right now of like where I'm at in my life is I kind of like look at things holistically because I'm not where I was. And if anything ever were to get bad, I would consider that choice. And I just want, you know, anyone listening who maybe the meds aren't working out or they're deciding to go another path, like support can look very different for like everyone. So like, while yeah, like while like therapy, medic, like I have, I have some people in my life who are just like "Eh," anti therapy. I mean, like they won't even consider the idea and I'm like okay that's fine but like you do need support so like what does that look like if it's not that you know um and so I think it's like it can look like a lot of things for different people but the one thing that is like I find that I I like to say is like it does need to look like something and so even if it's trying these different things seeing what works seeing how your body reacts seeing how your mind reacts and then making a game plan from there, I think is really, really important. Yeah, no, for sure. I think my biggest thing with like the meds is to say that I hadn't done them for a while. I was against them. I've had acute times. And like there, if you're, if people are doing well and you're finding what works for you, it doesn't have to be meds. I'm not saying that. Like it's going to, it is going to look different for everyone and everything's going to look different. But if there is a persistent thing, you're not able to find what works, all this kind of stuff finding someone who's going to be creative in their holistic approach because it's not just meds are not the only answer for me and there's totally. a bunch of other things that are going on um and so yeah finding what works for you is huge and trying one med or trying one modality of therapy is not going to give you the whole answer and so there's like a ton of combinations of things that you can do to identify what helps 100 percent um well, we're just about a time and <laughs> I mean, I could continue this conversation forever, mm-hmm. but at a certain point we must, we must say goodbye. Yes. I like to ask two closing questions. So the first closing question is if you had one piece of advice to anyone listening based on your experiences, what would that piece of advice be? Don't be afraid to advocate for yourself. Be persistent in advocating for your needs and you are the one that knows your body the best. And so if that is not being heard or listened to, find someone else who is going to listen. Such a great answer. And the final question and my personal favorite, what are you most grateful for? My mom, to be quite honest, she is like, I didn't like growing up, I didn't realize how great she was. Um, And as an adult now, she is just like, such a badass um she just all around as a human um in like career wise personal wise just um she's just been a huge part of my life and huge support in ways that I never realized were going to be needed so we love a role model and an incredible support system all in one that's that's Mm -hmm. amazing um Well, Emily, thank you so much for coming on the Mental Matchup and sharing and getting deep. I mean, I feel like we got pretty vulnerable there. So I appreciate you, you know, sharing your experiences.
Another huge thank you to Emily for coming on the mental matchup and being incredibly vulnerable with her experience and her story. I am so grateful to not just not just to have had her on this episode, but also for her to also be willing to record and answer a few questions around the brain on a later episode. I think she's incredible and is very honest, transparent, and willing to, you know, share something, things, multiple things that she has been through and, and, you know, get really detailed with them, um, in the hope that she helps, you know, inspire someone else to maybe get help or, someone else feels a little bit less alone. So with that, another huge thank you to Emily. If you want to find her, you can find her on Instagram at Where's Weibel or at the www.brainbodyfoundations.com. Another huge, 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 huge thank you to Morgan's Message for presenting the mental matchup. We would not be here without them. Um, If you want to get involved in Morgan's Message, Or if you just want to find out more, maybe you want to follow along, you can head to morgansmessage.org. And lastly, if you are interested in sharing your story with The Mental Matchup, whether it be on the podcast or online, you know, either or, um, please reach out to submission at at morgansmessage.com. With that, I will see you next episode.